Let's go together to Luke chapter 20, and we're going to take on together the final parable of our Lord recorded in Luke's gospel. For now, a period of months, we've gone through each of these parables, now to the final one, and it is this one, the parable of the wicked tenants. It's years ago now where I heard somebody share how important it is that we teach our children to learn to respect and obey appropriate authority. So they said, your children need to learn to respect you as parents. And if they don't learn to respect you as parents, if they don't learn to respect good teachers and police officers, then eventually they will have to learn to respect and obey authority in a prison. <laughs> eventually it's going to be a prison warden that they'll have to learn from. And there's some truth in that for sure. We know that understanding and responding to appropriate authority is an important part of life, but it's also important to discern who should be an authority in my life. Not everybody who makes a claim to authority is a legitimate authority for us. So here we know our context. We live in an increasingly hostile culture to Christ and things of Christ, and they want to be the authority for us. And we have to continually say, no, you can't be my authority. I already have a leader. We just sang about the Lordship of Jesus. He's the leader of my life. And so we just graciously keep following Jesus. Some of you, it may be your friend group. You've got friends, you love them, you, you need them, you feel like, and they are making some demands on you that we're going to actually dictate how you live. You come with us, and yet you understand. I think the scripture is calling me in a different way than that. You have to discern what is an appropriate authority. And again, Jesus is the only one who should be that absolute authority of your life. Jesus is Lord. We just sang it. He is Lord over all. And I want you to hang on to that. We're, we're on our way to the parable but let's just think about this together. This idea that Jesus has all authority. Jesus said this himself in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Think about how stunning these words are. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's quite an exhaustive statement of our Savior. Paul said this of Jesus in Colossians 1.15. Listen to this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Listen to this. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Jesus is the ultimate authority. And yet we come to a parable today where we're going to see what it looks like when people reject the authority of Jesus. We're going to see again these Jewish religious leaders and how they once again challenged and rejected the leadership of Jesus. And we're going to see what a horrendous and costly miscalculation that was for them. My prayer is that we're going to learn from these false leaders. We're going to learn from them as they turn away from Christ. We're going to say, okay, I'm not going to make the same mistake. I'm going to turn to Christ. So here's the context of this parable we're about to read. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. When he came in, people were praising him and waving palm branches. Indeed, it was a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Not long after that, we find Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, knowing how spiritually lost the people were in that city, 
Also knowing how destruction was going to come to Jerusalem by A.D. 70, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Then sometime after that, we find that Jesus has gone into the temple and he has what we call cleansed the temple. They had come into dishonest trade in this temple. It's supposed to be a place of worship, a place of prayer. Jesus finds it not that, turns over the tables, chases those people out. And because of these things, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they were furious with Jesus. They were plotting how they would destroy Jesus. So go with me now, Luke 20, verses 1 and 2, and let's hear some of this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Essentially, the question they're asking Jesus is this, who do you think that you are? Who or what gives you the right to ride into Jerusalem like you're a king? Who or what gave you the right to chase the merchants out of this temple? Who or what gives you the right to set yourself up as a teacher in this temple of ours? In other words, who gave you the right to be prophet, priest, and king? But I love this. Jesus, just talking about his authority a moment, he responds to their questioning with a question. He doesn't play their game. He doesn't knuckle under their, their questioning, doesn't let himself be in that spot. He turns the question on them. He actually has authority in that situation. Let's look at it together now. Verse three, he answered them. I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus puts the question back on them. They have to huddle up. We got to figure this out. What are we going to say? Because we can't say what we're really thinking because people won't like it. And so they have a kind of a cop-out answer. We don't know where John's authority came from. Of course, Jesus is making the point. My authority comes from the exact same place from God, the father who sent John the Baptist. And now of course, Jesus being God in the flesh right there, this is where the authority comes from. So it's in this contentious context that Jesus gives us this final parable here. So let's go in together now in verse nine and read the parable. And he began to tell the people this parable, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out into the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So there's the parable. It's quite straightforward. 
But let's consider together who these people are that Jesus talks about in the story and what these components might mean. First of all, we have the vineyard. To what does the vineyard refer? The vineyard is the people of Israel. It's the Jewish people. That's the vineyard here. And then we ask, well, then who is the owner of the vineyard? Well, this is God the Father himself. In fact, in the Old Covenant, we find that reference where God would refer to the people of Israel as his vineyard. Here's one example in Isaiah chapter 5. The prophet Isaiah wrote, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And the prophet went on to say this, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness and behold an outcry. So the people of God, the Jewish people, his vineyard, but what a troubled vineyard it was. Then we ask the question, well, then who are these tenants in this parable that Jesus told about? These ones who are running the vineyard. Here, Jesus is referring to the religious leaders of the past. These who are priests and others, the religious leaders, they had become corrupt and heartless, even hostile against God himself. And then we come to the servants. Jesus tells us these servants have come to go get some fruit from the vineyard and they're treated so terribly. Who are these servants? These were God's prophets through the years. In fact, let's hear that again, how they were treated. Verses 10 and following. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. So in this parable, Jesus gives a real history lesson of how the people of Israel have treated the prophets of God through the ages. And so think about it with me. We can see this in some of the examples we know about. We think about the great prophet Moses. Wonderful prophet, faithful to God, but wasn't he having a difficult time leading the stubborn people of God? It was a difficult ministry because God's people had been difficult. Maybe more notably, we think about how Jeremiah was treated. Jeremiah, the one known as the weeping prophet, so faithful but so hated by the leaders and by the people, he was hunted, arrested, persecuted. In fact, it's likely we're told that Jeremiah was stoned to death at the end of his life by the people. Then there's Isaiah, and a tradition tells us that he was likely sawn in two at the end of his life. Scripture doesn't say it, but some tradition early gives us that indication, that reading at the end of Hebrews 11, we read about some sawn in two. Some say that would be a reference perhaps to Isaiah. Then there's Zechariah who was stoned to death. And then we have John the Baptist who really was the last of the old covenant prophets bridging into the new covenant and he was beheaded. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen, this godly deacon preaching to people as they're becoming more and more hostile, he says this recounting the same history Jesus brings up here. He says in Acts 7.51, Stephen wrote, or he preached this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. 
As we think about Jesus here, talking about these prophets, these servants coming and being mistreated, and yet God sends another and being mistreated, sends another. What does it say about God? Speaks about God's love, doesn't it? That even though his people were difficult, he kept sending a word to them. He kept sending messages to them. Even though they abused his prophets and killed many of his prophets, God kept speaking to his people. It's going to be from that people, a savior for the entire world is going to come. And so God persisted. Listen, it says a lot about him. But now Jesus, as he continues this parable, speaks of the servants. And now he talks about one who is a son. And this is where Jesus inserts himself into the parable. Jesus is the one here represented by the son. This is the culmination of the parable. This is very prophetic what they're going to do to the son. Verse 13 again. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So these tenants, they've gone from bad to now even worse, from rejecting the servants now to killing the son. So that's the parable. Now let's look for some important takeaways for what our Savior has given us here. And the first thing is here, I want you to notice with me, Jesus's great identity. Notice with me, Jesus's great identity. Jesus is going to speak about his unique relationship with the Father. Did you notice the distinction Jesus makes between the servants who came before him, the prophets, and himself? Jesus was not one of the prophets. Jesus was and is the unique and only Son of God. And so Jesus talks this way, not just another servant. Oh, he is the son. The writer of Hebrews spoke the same way. In Hebrews 1, 1, we read this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Oh, what a great identity that Jesus has. What great authority that Jesus has. Understand, Jesus is greater than all the prophets. Understand that Jesus is greater than even all of the angels. Jesus is in a completely different category than anyone else. He is indeed the Son, the Son of God. He's one with the Father. I love what the writer of Hebrews says, that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, of the Father's nature. Jesus is our creator. We're told here that through whom also he created the world. A few moments ago, I read to you from Colossians 1. Hear these words again. All things were created by him and for him. You know you have ultimate authority when you made everything and it was all made for yourself. And this is Jesus. Consider his great identity even given to us in this parable. He indeed is the Messiah, the one who came to redeem us and bring us to the Father. So again, this context, this contention over what kind of authority do you have? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus just establishing, I'm not merely a servant who came like many who came. 
Oh, I am the son, and it's all mine. So today, right where you are, would you embrace that? Would you understand with clarity who Jesus is? Would you delight yourself in his great identity? And would you give him praise? Would you recognize his, his unique, exalted place there with the Father? Would you bow to his authority? That's the only right thing to do when you recognize him for who he is. No longer be among those who are rejecting Christ and his leadership in your life, but fully embrace him by faith and surrender to him. So see with me his great identity. But also through this parable, would you see with me his great sacrifice? Jesus speaks here prophetically about his upcoming death. In just a matter of days, he speaks to them about this, how the son is going to be rejected and he's going to be killed. Jesus would repeatedly do this on his way to Jerusalem. He would tell them, when we get to Jerusalem, the son of man is going to be killed, but he will be raised up. So this is good for us to remember that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was fully aware of what was going to happen to him. It wasn't the plan of God failing when he got to Jerusalem. It's not that Jesus had no idea if he'd have just been a little nicer, treated the Pharisees a little bit better, said nicer things to Pilate, maybe it wouldn't have happened. What was the plan of God before he ever left heaven? Before the foundation of the world, this was the plan. The Savior would come to die for us. Consider with me the love of God. What a great sacrifice God was willing to make for all of us. Have you embraced that sacrifice? Here's how you do it. First of all, would you acknowledge that you needed that sacrifice for your sins? No longer think, well, I think I'm good enough. I don't think I needed somebody to rescue me. You have to move away from that. Repent of that type of thinking and agree with the word of God and agree with God. You needed somebody to rescue you. You needed a savior to come and to give his blood for your sins. You need to embrace that. And then indeed and say, Jesus, and I do want you to be my savior. Embrace the savior. So see his great identity. See this great sacrifice he was willing to make for you. And then this, see his great judgment. See his great judgment. For those who reject his authority, reject his identity, reject his sacrifice, there is a great judgment coming. Notice Jesus brings up the question, what will God do in response to all this rejection? Look at the latter part of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Two things are going to happen. The vineyard's going to be taken away from those who had it and it'll be given to somebody else. Of course, we're grateful that God still works among his Jewish people, his chosen people. But we see in the book of Acts where Gentiles, like most of us, also now included in, not just for the Jewish people, the gospel, of course, still for them, to the Jew first, also to the Gentiles. We read in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two, God took two people and he made them into one. We get to be a part of this vineyard, but it's no longer them alone. And then the judgment. It's gonna be quite severe. We see this, that God... Jesus says, will destroy these tenants. What they did to the prophets, what was done to Jesus in his crucifixion was a great evil. Though it was the plan of God, it happened through the hands of sinful men and there will be great judgment for that. They'll be judged accordingly. And here's another occasion where Jesus is not shy, as loving as he is, to bring up judgment. Very comfortably brings it up because it is true. But the faithless religious leaders respond even to that message that, that we know they knew was about them 
They say in response to Jesus' parable, surely not. They rejected the prophets before. They're rejecting Jesus now. Even his message, even this final parable, they say, surely not. They understood this was against them, but they're objecting. We're not that bad. We're not the bad guys here. We're not unfaithful. Isn't it true that oftentimes people are blind to the real picture of themselves? I think we're kind of inclined to look at ourselves in a more optimistic way than is accurate. And so here are these people full of hatred toward Jesus himself and saying, surely not. They're missing it. But think about how blind they must have been. Here is Jesus. We're, we're reading this, what's recorded for us all these years later. These people were there in real time. Jesus in real space and time himself is telling them this parable. They have the savior of the world right in front of them and they hate him. And they don't realize how off they are. This is how blind people can be. Their creator, remember Jesus made all things, all things were created by him and for him. Their creator's right there. They hate their creator. The one who is the Messiah that all the old covenant scriptures talked about. He's there in their day, in their time, and they are rejecting him and they are hating him. These are the very people, among others, who will be shouting out in just a matter of days, crucify him, crucify him. How blind, how evil the rejection. Then Jesus directs a final word to them. In response to their words, surely not. Here's what Jesus says in verse 17. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is indicating, yes, in just a matter of days, I will be crucified at your hands. But that is not going to be the end of the story. Jesus here quotes from Psalm 118 verse 22 about a stone being rejected that's going to be the very cornerstone. Isaiah spoke in similar ways in Isaiah 8:14. He says, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So this Jesus in the parable, a rejected son will be raised and he will rule. Jesus here describes himself as a rejected stone is indeed the very cornerstone. In fact, the, the entire building, Jesus was rejected and crucified, but he was raised from the dead. He ascended back to heaven, back to his throne where he indeed has all authority for all time. These men foolishly were rejecting Jesus. They rejected him, this stone, this one who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They rejected Jesus, the one who's going to judge the entire world. That's what he's saying. He's going to judge all of them. As one scholar put it, whether you fall on him or he falls on you, the result is the same, destruction. If we fall over him, he will fall on us, bringing eternal destruction upon our souls. So let's apply this parable to ourselves here in the moments that remain. See with me, first of all, who Jesus claimed to be. See his great identity with me today. Secondly, see Jesus' death that was planned for you, that he gave his body and blood for you. See his great sacrifice this morning. 
See the folly and danger of rejecting Jesus. See and heed the news that there is a judgment coming for all who reject putting their faith in Jesus. Learn from what the others did. This is why this is in the scripture. Don't be among those who reject. Be one who would trust in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. As you think about your life, no longer be one who's rejecting the leadership of Jesus in your life. Don't reject him in any area of your life. Be one, like we sang earlier, Jesus is Lord of all and I give all of myself to him. But you have the other option. Like those we read about here, these religious leaders who stumbled over that stone. The stone that should have been their very cornerstone, the very foundation of their lives that they should have joyfully embraced and said, no, they stumbled over Jesus. You might be one like that today. You're stumbling over Jesus. This message that you need Jesus, this message that you need to repent of sin and trust in Jesus, you might be stumbling over that because you think I don't need a savior. I'm already good enough by myself. I, I, if you knew me, you'd know how sweet I am and how kind I am, how generous I am. You're stumbling over this. And you'll perish in your sins if you reject this Jesus who gave his body and blood for you on a cross. Don't stumble over that thinking you're too good for a savior. Some people stumble over this because they think, wait a minute, only one way to heaven? That just doesn't seem right. God owes me many other paths. I should be able to choose my way to heaven. If path of my choosing, you're stumbling over something. The good news is God gave you a way to be saved. There's one perfect one who left heaven who lived a perfect life, who was a perfect sacrifice for you. There is no other name by which you must be saved. Trust in Jesus. Don't stumble over that and perish in your sins. Come to Jesus. Trust in him today. But I want to remind you to count the cost. There is challenge in this. We just read about how hostile people can be to those who follow after the Lord. We saw what they did to the prophets. We consider what they did to the apostles. We see what they did to Jesus himself. Understand, if you choose to follow Jesus, as you should, build your life on him, others will mock you. You certainly will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Count the cost, but nevertheless, run to that cornerstone. Don't reject him. Expect some to reject you because you put your faith in Jesus. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, the world will hate you because of me. Count the cost in these days. Don't be surprised if you experience some of this treatment. Of course, our move is never to return evil for evil, but do count the cost and don't compromise to the pressure that's coming inbound on you as a follower of Christ. Don't follow their authority. You've made your decision. I'm trusting in Jesus as my savior. He is the Lord of my life and of all my views and my whole entire life. I'm going to follow after him with all joy they might come at you with pride, but you're going to respond with humility. They might come at you with lies, but you're always going to respond with God's truth. They may come at you with hatred, but you're going to come back loving your enemies, as Jesus said. You're going to pray for those who persecute you. They might bring real pain and cost to you in your life for following Jesus, but you're going to remain faithful like the prophets did before us. Like the apostles did before us, we're going to remain faithful in our generation because there's just one great authority. It's Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected, he's the cornerstone and we gladly know him. Would you pray with me?